In just a moment, I'm going to read from the Epistle of Galatians, chapter 4 and chapter 6, 4, 12 through 20, and 6, 11 through 15. This is the concluding sermon in this series, God's Liberating Love. And thank you for your feedback and your questions and your curiosity and your insights as we've been in this series. Uh, It's a rich, rich book of the Bible. And I want to encourage you, if uh, this is your first Sunday here or you maybe missed some of those Sundays, it's very easy to go on the church's webpage and and click... uh, the audio to listen to previous sermons, to sort of get a feel for how all of it hangs together, sort of as an aggregate, the, the whole is greater than the sum of the parts as we uh, study God's word together. So I want to encourage you to do that. And this morning, uh, we're going to think about how all of this trickled down into such a practical way of uh, Paul identifying uh, a hypercritical spirit and judgmentalism. Uh, and how Paul even dealt with attacks of criticism and unfair judgment from others. And uh, we see ourselves on both sides of that, don't we? Uh, Sometimes we're the unfair judge, and sometimes we're the ones uh, receiving that that withering criticism. So it's an amazing uh, section of Scripture, the two passages we're going to read. Before I read, I would invite us to one more time just be in God's presence. Would you bow with me? as we pause for some prayer and listening. I want to invite you to make this a time when you can be in God's presence to confess sin or to plead for something that you need in your life or to simply tell God how much you love Him or to simply just sit and soak the glories of His presence. The ancient prophet declares, our Heavenly Father, that the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. And we confess that the noise of this world and of our lives sometimes drown out your still small voice. So today we invite you to pierce our defenses our ever-stubborn egos, that you may open our hearts to those chains, to an awareness of those chains that still bind us. God, that you would give us insight into the deeper reservoirs of your grace that we have not yet enjoyed or experienced, that we might be set free from the need of controlling and thinking that we're in charge of your world. We wait in your presence. We thank you for your love. In the strong name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Now from Galatians chapter 4, first of all, beginning in verse 12, and then chapter 6, verse 11. Would you stand with me if you're able to do so, please, as I read God's word aloud? And This morning, for clarity's sake, I just found the message uh, rendering of these two passages to be very uh, much more helpful and clear. My dear friends, what I would really like you to do is try to put yourselves in my shoes to the same extent that I, when I was with you, 
put myself in yours. You were very sensitive and kind then. You did not come down on me personally. You were well aware that the reason I ended up preaching to you was that I was physically broken and so prevented from continuing my journey. I was forced to stop with you. That is how I came to preach to you. And don't you remember that even though taking in a sick guest was most troublesome for you, you chose to treat me as well as you would have treated an angel of God, as well as you would have treated Jesus himself if he had visited you? What has happened to the satisfaction you felt at that time? There were some of you then who, if possible, would have given your very eyes to me. That is how deeply you cared. And now have I suddenly become your enemy simply by telling you the truth? I can't believe it. Those heretical teachers go to great lengths to flatter you, but their motives are rotten. They want to shut you out of the free world of God's grace so that you will always depend on them for approval and direction, making them feel important. It is a good thing to be ardent in doing good, but not just when I am in your presence. Can't you continue the same concern for both my person and my message when I'm away from you that you had when I was with you? Do you know how I feel right now and will feel until Christ's life becomes visible in your lives? Like a mother in the pain of childbirth. Oh, I keep wishing that I was with you. Then I wouldn't be reduced to this blunt letter-writing language out of sheer frustration. And then to chapter 6, beginning in verse 11. Now in these last sentences... I want to emphasize in the bold scrawls of my personal handwriting the immense importance of what I have written to you. These people who are attempting to force the ways of circumcision on you have only one motive. They want an easy way to look good before others, lacking the courage to live by a faith that shares Christ's suffering and death. All their talk about the law is gas. They themselves don't keep the law, and they are highly selective in the laws they do observe. They only want you to be circumcised so they can boast of their success in recruiting you to their side. That is contemptible. For my part, I'm going to boast about nothing but the cross of our Master Jesus Christ. Because of that cross, I have been crucified in relation to the world, set free from the stifling atmosphere of pleasing others and fitting into little patterns that they dictate. Can't you see the central issue is in all this? It is not what you do or I do. Submit to circumcision, reject circumcision. It is what God is doing, and he is creating something totally new, a free life. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Are you a person who has the habit of judging other people? Criticizing other people? Finding yourself hypercritical of of others when you see faults? And if you are, would you like to be free of that habit? Are you on the flip side a person who is enslaved to always needing the approval of others, always being enslaved to the validation that other people can give you? Would you like to be free in Christ's power 
from that terrible, stifling prison. The Apostle Paul knew a little bit about being criticized. The Judaizers of the Galatian region had come in after he had gone from that place and had started criticizing his work. They believed that committing your life to Jesus Christ was not enough to get your sins forgiven, that that you have to also keep Jewish rituals and laws. And in order to tear down Paul's work, they needed to not only criticize his message, but criticize him. And their criticism went something like this to the Galatian people. You know, Paul's liberal. He's liberal. He doesn't preach the Bible. The Bible of his day was the Torah, the Old Testament, the books of Moses, the history books, the, the uh, prophets. You know, he doesn't, he doesn't preach like most people preach. He's, he's liberal. You shouldn't listen to him. And their hang-up was that Paul said, we're saved by grace, not by works. So they immediately jumped to the conclusion that Paul was saying that Christian works don't matter. They put words in his mouth as if he were saying, you know, all you've got to do is commit your life to Christ and then you can go out and live like you want. That's not what Paul said. Let me show you on the screen a little formula that's the shortest summary of what Paul said. Good works do not produce salvation. Salvation produces good works. That's the simplest declaration of the relationship between faith and works. We're saved not by our efforts, by our achievements, but by God's good grace, what Jesus Christ has done for us. But if we are truly His, we've been born into that relationship, Paul says that salvation will produce good works. In fact, in chapter 5, he talks about Christ growing in us, producing the fruit of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, generosity, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control about those good works growing inside of us like a garden. But you know, the fundamentalists of Paul's day wouldn't hear any of it because they'd already made up their mind. They needed to criticize Paul because if he kept preaching that we are free in Christ, then these Judaizers could no longer control people. They could no longer dominate them and have their way with these people and be in charge. And I'm amazed that even 20 plus centuries have come and gone. This letter was written, we think, the late 40s, just maybe 15 years after Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection. I'm amazed at how relevant this message is uh, in our culture today, how, how people who are divisive and who are controlling will try to pick people off and isolate them. And I want to show you a rendering of verse uh, 17 uh, from Galatians chapter 4. Paul says, these people want to shut you out of the free world of God's grace. I read this just a few moments ago from the message. They want to shut you out from the free world of God's grace so that you will always depend on them for approval and direction, making them feel important. Now, I'm telling you what, right there, you have every first grade playground tiff that ever happened. Right there, you have every fifth grade girls slumber party that ever happened, right? Right there, you have every office politics brouhaha that ever happened. Right there, you have every church conflict that ever happened. Or the divisiveness within a country or a people. 
First of all, they isolate you and make you think that you depend on them alone, not God's approval, but their approval. And once they have you depending on them, they can give you direction and control. And after all, when everything's said and done, what they really need is for you to approve them and think they're important. What psychological insights? And Paul never attended Mizzou. How did he get so smart? How did he get so smart? Well, you see how practical this message of God's grace is. See, stop and think. What makes us become hypercritical of other people? What makes us obsessively judgmental of others? Well, it's not simple, but, but here's, here's a try at, at sort of summarizing. If I can't really believe and accept God's unconditional love for me, as I am, God absolutely loves me and values me. If I cannot accept God's unconditional love for me, then I'll never forgive myself for being imperfect. And if I cannot forgive myself for being imperfect, then I'm going to find it very difficult to forgive other people for being imperfect. You see the pattern? If I cannot experience unconditional grace from God, I'm not ever going to give that grace to myself. And if I can never give that grace to myself, other people's faults will always remind me of my own, and the simplest way to deal with that is to project it on other people and criticize them. Think about the three courts of approval that we always work for. There's the court of the approval of other people, the court of the approval of myself, I, I approve of me, and there's the court of God's approval. When we start with other people's approval, we'll never feel good about ourselves, and that will color how we think God loves us, as if God loves us with conditions. Why don't we flip that around and start where God starts, with grace and forgiveness and the cross? If I have God's approval then I can live loving myself in a healthy way and that will help me love others and approve of others or live with their disapproval. Historians have uh, had a heyday psychoanalyzing the late Senator Joe McCarthy. The McCarthyism of the late 1940s and early 50s was a scourge on our nation because a relatively bright man, an effective legislator, became obsessed with communists and communism. And he began to carelessly accuse people of being communist without dealing in facts, without dealing in reality, with uh, half-truths and non-truths and, and uh, uh, broad blanket statements, and, and literally ruined many, many lives and many, many careers. And one of the things that people have noticed as they've studied his life, that he was very thin-skinned when anybody else would criticize him. But yet he was absolutely destroying other people's lives by judging them. He could dish it out, but, but he was so thin-skinned at, at dealing with others who might criticize him. And isn't it true that sometimes the most judgmental among us 
are the most thin-skinned about receiving criticism. And you know, the sad truth is that when we don't like ourselves, the only time we can feel good about ourselves is when we're feeling bad about other people. It's like a narcotic. You've got to have it. So, thinking together now, sort of flipping this around, how did the Apostle Paul deal with this withering criticism? We read this in Galatians, especially in 1 Corinthians, in, in several other places in his letters, where he was constantly being criticized. And I want to show you a few things that the Apostle Paul did all rooted in God's grace, all rooted in what Jesus has done for us. First of all, he maintained healthy boundaries and pushed back lovingly when appropriate. I think one of the things that we need to realize when we're criticized is that it's okay for us to have healthy boundaries, to tell people when that's inappropriate. And we push back lovingly, not unkindly, because in this Galatian letter in chapter 4, he says, you know, you were so loving to me when I was preaching in your midst in the central region of, of Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey, in the region of Galatia. In fact, it's because I was sick that I stayed there a while and preached the gospel, and you, you were so loving to me. He says, now what's happened since, since when I tell you the truth, do I suddenly become your enemy? Don't friends love each other enough to tell each other the truth? So he lovingly pushed back, keeping his own boundaries, not letting them define his well-being. And that's appropriate for us when we're criticized. The second thing he did was to learn from his critics. We can learn from our critics. See, I'm convinced that because Paul heard the criticism that folks thought that getting saved by grace meant that you never have to do any good works, I'm convinced that Paul actually clarified his message to the Galatians, the relationship between faith and works. And he probably clarified it in the book of Romans. And he clarified it in his preaching and his counseling and his teaching because he learned from his critics. And you know, our critics can be cruel, uninformed, very unkind, and they can be wrong on a lot of things. But there sometimes is a kernel of truth and what our critics say, and as Brian McLaren has said, we, learn, we need to learn to separate the wheat from the chaff when it comes to criticism. Throw away the chaff, keep the wheat, learn from it. And related to that, number three, the Apostle Paul did not overreact. Well, if you read Galatians carefully, he almost did. But that's another sermon. He did not overreact. And we have to be careful when we're criticized not to overreact. He acted appropriately. He pushed back gently and lovingly. He tried to learn from their criticism. But he didn't overreact. Because you know what happens when we overreact, when we're criticized? That actually shows that we are as enslaved to other people's opinions as our critics are. That shows that we're actually as enslaved to validation from people other than God, persons other than God, when we need to be free to just let God love us. 
and not, and not worry so much about what others think. And the fourth one is, is, of course, the biggie. Paul continually focused on the cross. He said, you know, these people who need other folks' approval, who, who criticize me and say I don't measure up, he says, my glory is not in what other people think of me. My glory is in the cross of Jesus Christ. And when you are criticized, you may begin to feel unworthy, a failure, and all you see are your mistakes. But don't ever forget that because Jesus Christ has died for you on the cross, God has eternally affirmed your core value. That you are a person of worth and dignity. And a person who's flawed, but a person loved deeply by God and showed us that by sending His Son Jesus to die for us. So that if the high God of heaven and earth affirms my worth, I can forgive the world if it occasionally makes a mistake in its valuing of me. Right? If the world occasionally mistakenly values me as worthless or a failure or wants to criticize, I can forgive the world for being wrong about me because God has affirmed it and stated clearly that we're people of worth. And there's that verse in, uh, I think it's verse 15. We are set free from the stifling atmosphere of pleasing others and fitting into their little patterns. That's what the cross of Christ will do. The grace of God poured into our lives will set us free from that stifling atmosphere of other people's straitjackets and other people's approval. See, I think Paul struggled. If you read his letters, he had his struggles. But in his darkest moments, he remembered something. That about 15 years earlier, a Jewish peasant rabbi had climbed up a steep, rugged hill called Calvary and had allowed himself to be nailed to pieces of lumber. And as he was hanging there, it's as if he cried out, Paul, I love you this much. It's as if at that moment, Jesus cried out, Doyle, I love you this much and don't let anybody ever tell you otherwise. And Bob and Jane and Joan and Bill and everybody. This is how much God loves us. And because Jesus died for us, we are set free. We are set free. 